This is on shifting ground. It's been almost two years since a violent mob stormed the U.S. Capitol and attempted to stop the peaceful transfer of presidential power. You'll never, ever take back our country with weakness. A special committee was appointed to investigate how America's center of power was overrun by extremists. And on December 19, 2022, the January 6th committee voted to bring a criminal referral against former President Trump. If the Department of Justice chooses to ignore the committee's referral, it could set a dangerous precedent for future elections. Are we inviting violence into our electoral process? When President Trump incited his followers to storm the U.S. Capitol, he punctured a 220-year-old tradition in the United States of America. And we've been coming to terms with the consequences for the past two years. Since the attack, conspiracists have grown more suspicious of our political institutions, white supremacists have become more emboldened, and culture itself feels like it's about to explode. We are here at the Supreme Court tonight, ahead of what could be a seismic shift. 82-year-old Paul Pelosi was struck on the head and torso. I could say anti-Semitic things and Adidas can't drop me. You can collect your Trump digital cards, just like a baseball card or other collectibles. The lingering effects of January 6th are no surprise to Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She studied a century of authoritarian strongmen and says what happened in the United States is straight from the playbook of authoritarian leaders past and present. Ben-Ghiat's insight into the authoritarian mind was so valuable, the January 6th committee interviewed her twice for its final report. This is a delicate moment for democracy, not just here in the U.S., but around the globe. Will a prosecution against former President Trump signal the U.S. is serious about holding future authoritarian leaders accountable? And what kind of message will it send to governments and extremist groups in places as diverse as Germany, Brazil, and Italy? Ruth Ben-Ghiat joins us now publisher of the newsletter Lucid, which follows threats to democracy. She's the author of the book Strongman, Mussolini to the Present, which looks for the political DNA shared by authoritarian leaders for the last century. She's a professor of history and Italian at New York University. It seems like a good time to have you back, Professor. Welcome to Unshifting Ground. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Well, sometimes sobering, sometimes moving sometimes positively jaw-dropping. The work of the January 6th Investigative Committee has ground forward in Congress, with one major American party taking what the committee exposed seriously and another dismissing the entire process as biased, partisan, one-sided, lacking credibility. Do you think it managed to be heard above the din of the political back and forth? Did it manage to break through, give a clear picture of what happened that day and what led up to it? 
I think it did. It attracted millions and millions of viewers, although Fox News did its best to not transmit most of it. I think it was successful because it used so many Republican aides, such as Cassidy Hutchinson and people who were very compelling, who were Republicans. I think it was able to present itself collectively, including the testimonies, as a bipartisan exercise in the rule of law and upholding justice. So in that sense, I think that it told a very compelling story. And I can say it was certainly the honor of my career to advise the committee and be interviewed and write a report for the committee. And they seem to carry out their duties with the utmost integrity. Well, along with your work and your contribution, they took a lot of sworn testimony. They did a lot of original investigation, but this was not a legal proceeding. The committee had subpoena power, took testimony, but a legal referral is more a recommendation than a binding action. Will it be taken seriously, do you think? By some, you know, and unfortunately, what the Republican Party and the Republican media universe has managed to do, it has a highly effective media machine with Fox News, with Tucker Carlson, and they started to do damage control on January 7th. And it's very interesting to go back and think of the distractions and diversions that we were fed, focusing on people like the QAnon shaman, in proportion to now we know the very high number of GOP sitting lawmakers who were complicit with this. And to me, that makes sense because a third of my book is about coups, and I had no idea it would be relevant to the American context. But there are certain patterns and almost principles or laws about coups, and one of them is they always involve a broad swath of elites across institutions. And here we had numerous people from within the party. We don't quite know the extent of collaboration of the Secret Service because they deleted their texts. And so the Republican media universe has successfully worked to provide alternate explanations. Um, there are millions of Americans who think January 6th was not much to write home about. They've been very successful in peddling this revisionist history. And so there are two narratives about January 6th among the American people, which is a symptom of our polarization. It is remarkable to see what's permissible in 2022. During the 50s and the 60s, during the height of Cold War paranoia, there were people who speculated about deep forces burrowed into the American state, who fantasized about overthrowing the government of the day, whether it was led by a Republican or a Democrat. But these people weren't members of Congress. What's changed? Well, the GOP has, and this is what happened over four years of Trump, who submitted the party to an authoritarian-style discipline and was very clear that he was an autocratic-style leader. And they were ready for this kind of shift in political culture. And so even before January 6th happened, and it happened because of this, there was this profound shift in the attitudes they had toward the norms of democracy. And Trump taught them that you can be rewarded for getting away with things, that lawlessness, corruption, inciting violence, which he did at his rallies, calling for people to be locked up because they're the political opposition, 
demonizing journalists, all the menu of things that authoritarian political culture and leaders are about. So he socialized them and rewarded them. So really, we're living through this historic time because the grand old party has transformed itself. You look at who's leaving or being pushed out of the party, and you look at who's coming in. And Marjorie Taylor Greene only entered electoral politics in 2019, and she is a QAnon supporter. She's an extremist, but she's now one of the most powerful people within the GOP. And when you have these kinds of climates, extremists do very well. And that's also why who else is coming in the party and being encouraged to be candidates? Actual extremists like members of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. And so we have Mark Fincham, who didn't win his election, but he became the GOP nominee for Secretary of State in Arizona. And he is a proud, self-proclaimed Oath Keeper. So what? this is a rhetorical question. What happens to a democracy when you have a bipartisan system and one of two parties has adopted extremism and also those extremists are now the lawmakers? Well, some of the charges being talked about or talked about being recommended coming out of the January 6th committee are insurrection, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the U.S. government stemming from the plan to submit alternative electors over the expressed will of the voters. Even if those recommendations, those referrals don't go anywhere, is the work important? Will rank-and-file citizens conclude that something dangerous was being planned for the country? Some will, and others will see it as a kind of a plot. But it's so important to have these recommendations, whatever actually happens, because honestly, prosecution is what matters. You must show that the state has the right to hold accountable those who try and overthrow the government. You must show that the rule of law matters. Otherwise, you descend into authoritarianism and anarchy, let's say. And it's very instructive to look at comparative politics. We just had an example in Peru where the president, Pedro Castillo, tried a self-coup, which is what Trump did. It's when a self-coup is when you're the autogolpe, when you're already in office and you're trying to stay there illegally. And the institutions, the constitutional court, the police, military, he didn't have any support. And so he's now in jail. And this is the fate of most leaders who do self-coups around the world. They end up falling into disgrace. Their parties and elites no longer support them and they have to go to jail or they go into exile. So here's our situation where somebody tried to self-coup and the party did not forsake him, indeed doubled down after January 7th in supporting him. And so two years later, this person thinks they can run for president again. This is the American exceptionalism. Well, along with the attempted autogolpe in Peru, there have been a lot of pretty consequential elections recently. Marine Le Pen was defeated in France. Georgia Meloni cobbled together a right-wing coalition in Italy. Olaf Scholz heads a new center-left government in Germany. Jair Bolsonaro was peacefully voted out, fired by the voters of Brazil. Now, just a minute ago, it seems, there was a lot of hand-wringing from very smart people about the rise of a new global right. How's it looking right now? 
Well, there is that threat because authoritarianism is in ascendance. And it's certainly not good news that in Italy, you have an actual hardcore neo-fascist in government. And she may use soft focus cameras and cold flowers and speak softly, but she's a hardcore neo-fascist and that's who the prime minister is now. But I also think that we're living in this absolutely extraordinary time where the unsustainability of authoritarianism is showing itself. This is why you have a global renaissance of protest, even in China. Look at in Iran. And you also have the missteps of autocrats that I describe in my book revealed in all their terrible toll on humanity, which is Putin's genocidal war on Ukraine, which was launched in classic autocrat fashion. And so you see that there's new generations who are protesting and knowing that this kind of exploiting nature, plundering the environment, plundering the economy, this is not sustainable. So we are living through a very, very fateful time, I feel, in terms of the clash between democracy and autocracy. You mentioned earlier of Vladimir Putin in Russia. Does the trajectory of the invasion of Ukraine give pause, a little pushback to the rising right around the world? If you're a right-winger in Poland, in Czechoslovakia, in Hungary, in Holland. Are you looking at that and thinking, hmm, you know, that's, that's a setback for all of us? Well, there are two directions of thought here. Unfortunately, if you're an autocrat, and I, I spent three unpleasant years immersed in the strongman mind to write my book. <laughs> if you're an autocrat, the longer this war goes on, or is allowed to go on because the West and allies are not giving Ukraine what it needs to defeat definitively Russia, the longer it goes on, the more other autocrats will feel emboldened to do their own imperialist things. So China with Taiwan, and then sure enough, we start hearing rumblings from Turkey Erdogan sees that Russia is distracted and weak and so will want to consolidate his hold in Syria and other places. So there's that. But it's quite extraordinary. Putin made this decision to invade Ukraine in a classic strongman in a bubble manner. He didn't consult adequately with his military. He didn't game out the sanctions with his economic experts. And it's really world-changing that the Russian military... Um, has revealed to be a corrupt and ravaged institution by his kleptocracy. And, of course, the danger for the world is when a strongman feels humiliated and exposed, they never back down. They become more ferocious and more destructive. And they're very glad to drag down their whole populations because they never cared about them to begin with. And the whole international order, they'll blow everything up. That's the way they roll, unfortunately. Recently, there was an interesting exchange. He let the mask slip for a moment. When asked about the war, he said, this isn't going as easily as I was told it would be. I was struck by him admitting that he is in a bubble, that he was being told by people that this was going to be a cakewalk. And now that it isn't, he's ready to throw them under the bus. 
Well, those are classic authoritarian tactics. And what you've just described is exhibit A of what we call institutionalized lying. Because authoritarian regimes, they're scams. They have a front of propaganda to cover up and Putin's is particularly marked in this regard. It's a kleptocracy. And we should never mention Putin's regime without mentioning it's a kleptocracy. And what happens is that not only the the resources of the state, including the military, become just a pawn and an asset to be plundered by the leader and his cronies, but a culture of fear exists. And in Russia, you could easily fall out of a window or be poisoned, as we all know, so that Nobody wants to tell the truth because they're afraid. And so when Putin says, I was told this would be easy, this is the product of the culture of institutionalized lying, of conformism, of fear that he himself has set up. And so that's why I conclude in my book, Strongman, that these men, they end badly because they set up processes that do them in in the end. And, you know, there's this Russian elite survey every few years. And the last time it was done in 2020, elites said that the main reason they supported Putin was that he brought them prestige in the world. Well, that's destroyed now. So we'll have to see what happens, not only, of course, with the war, which is the most important thing, but what happens to Putin in the next years. Is it important to make a distinction between style and methods One leader or another may like to talk like a tough guy, swagger around, but never really changes the way politics are carried on in the country, doesn't tinker with the Constitution or undermine institutions, while in another country there may be somebody quietly subverting the legal order and not making such a big deal out of it. Is there too much attention paid to either the verbal or political style of leaders who are suspected of having authoritarian tendencies? No, I think it's important to pay attention to them because what these people do when they start blustering around is, for example, if you take uh, Duterte and Trump, Bolsonaro, what they were doing, it was telling people before they got elected that they would stand for brute force That's why Trump said, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone, which should have been a red flag, it was for me. And so in the end, it's never just bluster. But the phenomenon you're describing about the blustering person who's not taken seriously versus a quieter extremist, what can happen, and we're living through this in the States, the GOP, for example, right now is deciding they would like an extremist who can win elections for them and doesn't say I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone. And so they are going to Ron DeSantis, who's being lionized as the quiet extremist. He's equally dangerous for our democracy. I've been writing about him for over a year because the second I saw what he was doing, I, was, I had a very bad feeling. But he is smoother. And in the Philippines, look what happened. You had Duterte, who was totally wild, and exuberant, he would say, you know, I threw people out of helicopters and I loved it, I'd do it again. And he stepped aside and his daughter is carrying on his legacy. But who do they have now? The more suit and tie extremists, the Marcos family, who actually are connected to a bloody dictatorship and martial law, but are seen as smoother and quieter, more efficient. So that's the danger that we have now 
the volcano of Trump could have us end up with the quiet, smooth, lethally dangerous extremist of DeSantis. I understand you've also taken an interest in the gyrations around Twitter since Elon Musk took over the social media platform. Why did that catch your eye? So I have like an informed intuition about certain people just from studying these types of leaders who can be found in the boardroom, too. And so last April, I tweeted that Musk, and this was before he was going to be buying Twitter, I said, Musk is trying to occupy the space left by Trump, swirling attention around himself, I think I said, in his garbage. And he has all the personal traits, the hubris, the faux selflessness, the savior complex, the visionary with the cult. And as we've seen now with the way he banned journalists with no warning, the pleasure of feeling powerful. And this is something that Ron DeSantis does too, which again, this is a huge red flag. Ron DeSantis even persecuted the Special Olympics. Why? Because he can. <laughs> no one is exempt from my power, says the strongman. So I saw these things developing with Musk's personality after taking control of Twitter. And uh, unfortunately, I haven't been wrong about him so far. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that, because it's not control over a government. He has no army, no tanks. It doesn't even have a great deal of machinery. How does control or influence over a social media platform fit into the way you think about these questions? Is it just because of scale? Does the Musk effect on Twitter, because Twitter is so much bigger, mean more than the right-wing control of Gab and Parler and 4chan and Telegraph and Truth Social. Is this more consequential, not because of its political orientation, but because it's Twitter? Yes, and because Twitter is an essential method in which governments communicate. In fact, the first time I realized that Twitter was unmatched for communicating breaking news, emergencies, was in 2016 with the coup against Erdogan where all night you got direct video, you get multiplicity of viewpoints, you get testimonies from the ground, all kinds of things that can't be matched, certainly by cable news or other things. And so the thing that's very dangerous with Musk and Twitter is that unlike some of these other sites you state, which have long been right-wing havens, Twitter was not. It's Again, it's used by governments. It's absolutely crucial in emergency communications. Disaster management people are very upset at what might happen to Twitter because they depend on it. But for me, the agenda of Musk has been to take Twitter and make it an engine of right-wing radicalization. I really believe this. This is why he has brought back actual Nazis like Andrew Anglin, who publishes this Daily Stormer based on a Nazi publication and his account was for many years suspended. Well, he restored his account. He restored Roger Stone's account. Roger Stone has been trying to overthrow democracies since the 80s in the Philippines. And also driving away, which has partly been successful, many progressives from the platform. So I see an opportunity he feels because he is an authoritarian personality and he also is a far-right ideologue. He believes in great replacement theory. He talks about the, quote, woke mind virus. 
so what better way to shift the world's consciousness and his megalomania mind than to make Twitter an engine of far-right radicalization? And so that's what I think he was trying to do. Later on in the program, we're going to have a guest from Germany telling us about the recent arrest of two dozen alleged coup plotters. It's hard to name a country that over the last 50 years has been more stable than Germany. What did you make of that? Yeah, it's very interesting. This group, of course, is part of this sovereign citizen movement, which is the Reichsbürger, which has about 21,000 adherents. And this kind of faction within this group that wanted to storm the Reichstag, they were directly influenced by January 6th, as well as, of course, long German traditions dating back to Hitler's Beer Hall Putsch. We're going to have the 100th anniversary of it in 2023. But also it's important because they had adopted American QAnon ideology and the conspiracy theory, the deep state, all of this. And so it's very sad that America has now, because of the influence of the GOP on January 6th, America is now an exporter of domestic terror ideologies. And QAnon has really caught on in Germany. It's the country that has the biggest following of QAnon people outside of America. And I think we're going to have to hear and talk a lot more about QAnon because tens of millions of Americans now believe this conspiracy theory. And that's why you also see people in Congress who represent it, like Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's also why Elon Musk did coded references to promoting QAnon on Twitter recently with the White Rabbit. That's very important that he did that. He's signaling. And it's also finally why Trump who's very skilled propagandist and a cult leader, he has been trying to cultivate these people. And people were very disturbed at the sites of the rally where people were doing straight arm salutes that looked to them like Nazism. Because what more efficient thing to take a cult that already exists and try and transfer its loyalties onto you. So QAnon is ripe for lots of bad actors to use it for their agendas to take down our democracy. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is the author of Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. She's also a teacher. She's a professor of history and Italian at NYU and publisher of the newsletter Lucid, which follows threats to democracy. Great to have you back. Always good to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You're listening to On Shifting Ground. I'm Ray Suarez. After the break, we'll hear about how conspiracy movements like QAnon are inspiring coup attempts in Europe. If you missed any part of this episode or want to catch up on other international stories, download our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Misinformation movements on the Internet, like QAnon, present trouble for foreign governments and institutions across the world. Conspiracy theories that originate in online chat rooms are gaining steam and escalating violence, even in countries that have long been cast as models for political stability. We begin in Germany a major arrests in an alleged plot to overthrow the government. A group linked to the so-called Reichsburger movement allegedly planned to carry out their coup. On December 7, 2022, Police arrested 25 people accused of planning to overthrow the German government. 
Among those arrested were members of the Reichsburger, a far-right German movement that, like the sovereign citizens extremist group here in the U.S., believes the government is illegitimate. Groups like the Reichsburger and sovereign citizens are certainly not new, but the ways they radicalize each other on the Internet is new. Julia Ebner joins us to discuss how once-fringe movements like QAnon are popping up in European political circles. She's an expert in disinformation at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue and spent years infiltrating online extremist networks for her book, Going Dark, The Secret Lives of Extremists. Welcome to On Shifting Ground. Hello. Hi. At first blush, the news that broke recently of more than two dozen people rounded up by German law enforcement for being part of a plot to overthrow the government was shocking. I mean, Germany is a very stable place politically. Were you surprised by this news? I have to say I wasn't surprised. Sadly, there has been a dramatic rise in the number of Reichsbürger, of sovereign citizens in Germany, and in general, a spread of anti-democratic views in Germany in recent years. We've also seen in my research of monitoring some of the channels where these people communicate that the language used became more radical and more aggressive and that the proneness to violence really increased in the last few years. Who are the Reichburgers? Were they a group well-known to people who, like you, keep an eye on extremist political groups? So I was aware of the Reichsburger movement because it's quite an old one in Germany. It's very unique to Germany. It's different from the U.S. sovereign citizens because they really believe that the legitimate political system in Germany is a pre-World War II system. So they don't really see the current democratic structures or the system as legitimate and they operate really outside of the legal frameworks. They've been around since the 1980s. But what's quite interesting now is to see that they combine their old school ideas with some newer ideas coming mainly from the U.S. with QAnon conspiracy myths featuring very heavily in their ideologies. That sounds like quite a brew. Uh, What are they borrowing in particular from either the sovereign citizens or from QAnon? They've mainly internationalized what previously used to be their ideas about the German state and the German elites. They now talk about the global elites. And of course, they don't explicitly not always use the word Jewish elites, but there are some anti-Semitic undertones in their ideologies. And they've also borrowed from QAnon a lot in terms of COVID denial, anti-vaxxer narratives, ideas about pedophilia networks being run in the underground by the so-called elites. And they're tying different conspiracy myths together. So often you see that they also recycle some of the slogans and some of the disinformation pieces that QAnon put out. And there is a very significant overlap now of the Reichsbürger scene in Germany with some of the international QAnon channels, for example, on Telegram. So somebody like you who tracks what these people are saying It must be fascinating to see them cross-pollinate like this, to see a a sort of strand of ideological DNA end up in another group's communications. Absolutely. I mean, from a research perspective, it's surely been fascinating to watch some of these online spaces turn into international hotbeds and where you really see that these ideologies are turning into a mosaic that borrow from different sub-communities, but then also use some of the older European ideas of the new right 
And it's been interesting to watch that, but it's also shocking to see to what extent some of their ideas have internationalized and have also been mainstreamed. This plot really showed how many different types of audiences they are now able to mobilize. The network that was exposed by the German security services included a former politician of the far-right populist party in Germany, the Alternative for Germany. It also included former doctors, a member of the former aristocratic family of the Reuss House, and also people with a background in the military, even in some of the elite special forces sections of the German military. So these people have very deep embeddings within the structures and within institutions. And that makes them quite concerning as well, because, of course, some of them know how to handle weapons. They know how to tap into information networks and how to even potentially use their institutions as a way to leverage their power. As you mentioned, some of these groups have been around for a long time, but I think the, the intention to topple the state ups the ante a little bit. From time to time, groups on the fringes of European politics pop into public view in Holland, in Norway, in Britain, and in Germany, but rarely are they reported to be contemplating trying to topple the state. Was this something new? Was this an escalation? This can certainly be described as an escalation. We've seen plots like this before, but on a much smaller scale. And of course, the outlook of really being successful with a violent coup against the German government, it's quite a surreal outlook. I don't think that anyone believes that they would have been successful with this, but it does show how far they are willing to go. And they had quite sophisticated and detailed plans of how they would kidnap politicians of how they would storm the parliament and overthrow the government, how they would try to trigger blackouts across the country and just create chaos in the entire country. How do you tell the difference, though, between what's merely uh, sort of brooding fantasies from people on the far right versus actual plans? There's always speculation about how these people need to die or how this government has to go and it's illegitimate. How do you tell the difference in your world between the steady stream of complaints and vitriol against established states versus something more like a plot? It's a very good question. There are, of course, some signs that distinguish merely empty threats from actual credible threats. So in this case, the network had already, for example, organized weapons. They also detected some very specific logistical arrangements that would have signaled that they are getting closer to actually wanting to carry out the plot. So this was not just merely words. This was already turned into the first steps of their plan. And this is usually a warning sign. In terms of socio-psychological factors, I'm actually doing research at Oxford University where I also look at what do, for example, terrorist manifestos have in terms of unique features? What can we learn from them to see what are the signs that someone might actually resort to violence in the real world? What distinguishes them from, for example, merely ideologically extreme political writings. So that's quite interesting because there are several factors that could be seen as almost being part of a formula where that should ring alarm bells in the security services and in the intelligence community. This was clearly a given in this plot. You mentioned that one of the people arrested had links before to uh, AFD, Alternative for Deutschland, a right-wing political party, which has done well in some recent German elections. 
How are Reichburgers different from AFD in their program, in their beliefs, in their goals? Are they really quite different animals? They are, because the Reichsbürger scene in Germany doesn't really accept any political solution anymore. They really operate outside of the legal and democratic framework. They're deeply anti-democratic. Of course, the alternative for Germany, populist far-right party, still sits within the wider framework of democracy. Although this is an important one, they have partly suggested severe changes to the constitution, to the way that the political system works. And it's also partly why the AFD have been monitored by the Protection Service for the protection of the German constitution, which is quite a special unit, but it's, it's basically German's domestic intelligence service that did even see the party as a potential threat to democracy. Of course, the political systems of the US and of Germany can't really be compared, but it might be similar to some of the more extreme forces within the Republican Party, where you can see that there was an emboldening or an encouragement of anti-democratic forces with election fraud narratives being at the forefront of their rhetoric. And something similar is happening in Germany with the AFD, where they really try to delegitimize the way that the democratic system works. Are they in conversation? Are they in contact with the Progress Party in Norway, Pim for Towns movement in Holland, the English Defense League? Do these groups talk to each other? Sometimes there is an opportunistic coalition being formed around important political events or around political campaigns that are carried out online where you see that there is some cross-pollination, even mutual support. But it is, of course, a very splintered landscape. The far-right populist parties in Europe do communicate. And we have also seen that they've borrowed from each other's tactics, that we've seen similar slogans being used. And even some of the more extreme movements have used each other's hateful memes or have copied communication strategies from each other. But there are also divisions within the wider far-right, which are definitely important. So it's a quite a complex landscape, I would say. But in this case, we do see that different strings and different types of far-right ideologies have come together. And the plot is actually a good example of how people from more the Reichsbürger community, as well as traditional far-right extremist movements, as well as QAnon adherents, have come together in a plot that goes way beyond the traditional types of potential terrorists that we looked at in Germany. In your research for your book, Going Dark, you infiltrated extremist groups. How did you do it and what did you learn? I spent several months setting up avatar identities online, first of all. So I could be recruited into different types of far-right extremist movements. I also joined some jihadist movements because I really wanted to learn more about the human drivers. What motivates people who join extremist movements and why do they stay there? And I was then, by some movements, invited to also join them offline. For example, Generation Identity in the UK had a meeting in an Airbnb and one meeting in a pub that I joined. I also went to a neo-Nazi festival on the German-Polish border and joined several other meetings, also live in person. And it did help me to get a better understanding of how they operate, how their tactics work, because they did also give us briefings at some point about their communication strategies, about how important optics is to them because they want to appeal to a more general audience, because they want to seem legitimate and want to brand themselves as something very separate from the old day neo-Nazis. 
So that was interesting, but also on a very human level to understand better what makes very young people sometimes join these movements. A lot of them didn't really know what they were getting themselves into. And some of them were purely attracted by the entertainment factor, by gamification of propaganda, of recruitment, where it all seemed like a video game. That's become something that I feel like is really dangerous for the next generations, because a lot of the extremist movements are very skillfully exploiting youth cultures, using satire and humor to blur the lines between what's real and what's fiction. It's not just trading Peppy the Frog pictures or musing about different kinds of guns. If they're talking about illegal things, are they getting more careful about who they let into these chat rooms, how they screen people to get closer to actual membership? They are now introducing much more rigorous vetting procedures and are much more careful in who they let in. So you often have to now prove yourself or prove that you are one of them, which has made it more difficult for researchers like myself, for journalists and even for the intelligence services to really take that step proactively and continue to stay within a group. When I started going undercover with extremist groups in 2016, around the time Trump was elected, in the run-up to the elections back then, it was much easier. That was before Charlottesville. I was in the channels where Charlottesville was coordinated. That was just when QAnon started becoming a movement. And there were zero checks for infiltrators or there were much less suspicions, which made it easier as a researcher to get insights because now you have to be willing to cross certain ethical boundaries because they might ask you to create a hateful meme or to run a campaign against someone. So that's something, for me, that was a red line. And I think that also meant that now I have to really pick and choose which extremist movements I can still get insights into. There have been efforts to shut these places down, to chase these people off the web. Do they have to use more time and energy now to stay one step ahead of regulators, international law enforcement, the police in their own countries? Yeah, definitely. They have been much more active in terms of circumventing policies. For example, they are using code words to escape detection mechanisms. In some cases, they are avoiding slurs or hateful terms or calls to violence because they know that they might be subject to removals or even to prosecution if they use this kind of language. So they've become a lot more cautious but at the same time, there is also the emergence of a whole alternative tech universe where they make use of these newer, smaller platforms. They might not be as prominent anymore on Facebook or on the meta platforms or on YouTube or on Twitter. Well, now Elon Musk has, has taken over. Maybe this is changing again. But they have resorted to other places in the online sphere. They've created their own free speech heavens where basically free speech was used as a pretext to also even post threats to violence, to post very extreme ideological messages. And there is a YouTube alternative, there is a Twitter alternative and the Facebook alternative. So there is a whole alternative tech universe, as I would call it. I wonder what you think about the wisdom of that, that chasing them forcing them to hide more deeply, to burrow into places that are harder to find, harder to see, whether that's really wise. I understand the impulse to try to shut down this speech, to try to discourage this speech. But if you take an 8chan and make them hide better, 
it's harder to watch what they're up to. That's definitely true. And some of it has been counterproductive. So, of course, the advantage of the removal of really hateful violence inciting content or even calls to violence was that it would reach a smaller audience. Even if they did migrate to other online platforms, to fringe platforms, that meant they couldn't really take their whole followership to the next platform. But on the other hand, as you say, it's become also a more of a challenge for the security services and the intelligence community to monitor what's going on on the smaller, more hidden platforms. Many movements have moved to encrypted messaging apps like Telegram and others. And that is definitely a challenge in terms of preventing acts of violence. And also it has caused more grievances that can be used by extremist movements for recruiting more people because the whole debate about freedom of speech has really turned into a major mobilization issue within the far right. And this is something where I would say that removal policies have had a negative effect on the discourse and have really enabled extremist movements to tap into those newly arising grievances. Some of the ideas that are espoused by these groups are frankly nutty. Yes, they do sort of predictable mainstream things like encourage lack of trust in institutions, spread ideas about the illegitimacy of the state, and so on. But when they're talking about John F. Kennedy Jr. returning or international wealthy groups drinking adrenalized children's blood, it's easy to make fun of it. But just how seriously do you have to take it? When you're noting the spread of QAnon ideas, does the dessert go with the main course? Do you have to really pay attention to the broader intent to delegitimize the state? Some of this is crack pottery, but you've seen that it's appealing and viral. Absolutely. Some of the ideas and conspiracy myths um, that have really turned into mainstream conspiracy myths. I never thought this would be possible. When I first joined QAnon and heard about the global elites being reptilians who drink the blood, supposedly, of young children to stay young, to me that was just so ridiculous that I didn't even give much more thought to it because I didn't think it would ever spread to millions of people, which it has. And so it's easy to not take these ideas seriously. The same is true for some of the trolling elements and the satire and humor used in extremist communities. They weren't really taken seriously simply because they used memes as a form of communications. Back when I first talked to the security services a few years ago, no one took that seriously. Then the Christchurch shooting happened where the entire terrorist attack was gamified to the extent that it was filmed from a first-person ego shooter angle and used this kind of insider vocabulary, gamer references, and so on. And then all of a sudden it became something that people took seriously. So there is a risk of looking too closely at the absurd ideologies and thinking, well, this is nuts, this can't possibly be serious. I do think that it's necessary to look at the overall patterns. As you say, the anti-democratic elements in it, the anti-minority hatred, and seeing also how this has always been the case. There have often been absurd elements to conspiracy myths, especially in terms of crisis. We see that there is a rise in conspiracy myths. Even looking back at the days of the plague or at cholera, there were absurd conspiracy myths about the origins of those health crises. The plague was associated with the myth spread that Jews had poisoned the dwells and that was the origin of it. Or for cholera, the myth circulated that, in fact, doctors wanted to harvest organs. So it's absolutely necessary to look beyond absurd 
ideologies and look for patterns that reappear over time. And these are definitely the demonization and dehumanization of an outgroup that is then tied to a bigger conspiracy and that can then justify, unfortunately, also acts of violence. Germany has seen big political changes. The departure of Angela Merkel after a long tenure as chancellor, a new man at the top, a general election, a new makeup of the Bundestag, and the fallout from the invasion of Ukraine. Do these things act as the friend, as an aid to these movements, or do they cause them to lie low right now? This external environment has definitely made a big contribution and has been a big amplifier for extremist or fringe forces across Europe, but especially in Germany, where they even talk about a winter of anger currently driving mass street protests, uh, and where you also see that there is an increasing overlap between the different extreme anti-democracy narratives. We've already seen the first kind of manifestations of this in the so-called migration crisis and refugee crisis in 2015 where the extreme fringes really benefited from this because they could new scapegoats, they could really tap into wider audiences that were afraid of the potential changes this would bring to Germany. And then now we have the Russian aggression war in Ukraine and the connected energy and economic crisis. And of course, in between also the COVID health crisis. So there were so many crises that extremists in the end benefited from. And you even see that some of their narratives about the so-called migration crisis and COVID and now Ukraine are overlapping and that they have shifted their focus to whatever crisis is most relevant at any point in time, because they know that there's so much uncertainty, so much frustration within the population that it really helps them widen their recruitment pool. Over the years, it's been easy to find maps of Germany that display patterns of economic growth and also patterns of social attitudes and the willingness to listen to some of these more extreme prescriptions. And it lined up pretty neatly with the old maps of West Germany and the Soviet satellite East Germany. Is that still the case or is this a problem that's broken out of the bounds of the old East Germany and now can be found more widely through what had been perceived as the more affluent, better educated, more secure parts of the country? There is still a tendency that the former Eastern part is really more vulnerable to extreme narratives, to anti-minority hatred, partly because of socioeconomic grievances and issues that they then connect to the so-called global elites, where they see themselves as the losers or as being on the losing end of globalization and of, in the end of capitalism. However, what we see in also in this most recent plot of the Reichsburgers is that there has definitely been a new dynamic that emerged in the last few years where even people from socioeconomically well-off backgrounds, also from Western parts of Germany, from really affluent and highly educated backgrounds, have joined extremist groups and have jumped on the bandwagon of anti-establishment resentment and really been more prone to narratives of anti-democratic and even violence inciting ideologies. What would you tell Americans to be on the lookout for? What will your research and your monitoring be focusing on in the coming weeks and months? 
what I find very concerning is how very extreme ideas that originated in some of the darkest corners on the internet have become mainstream and how this has been done partly by manipulating wide parts of the American population. So, I mean, take QAnon ideas, for example, where it's clear how this was initially a very small fringe community, and I watched it grow over the years, and how QAnon has ended up being one of the driving ideologies together with the Great Replacement idea behind the January 6 attacks on the Capitol. And I think this is really a global phenomenon where the US is just part of something bigger. We see the same dynamics happening in Germany as we just talked about now, but there was actually also an attempted storming of the German parliament a few months before the January 6 riots. So it is worth to really look at this on a global scale and also see the patterns there. And the mainstreaming of extreme ideas and how they can potentially lead to drastic political change that is in the interest of anti-democratic forces, also of foreign forces such as Russia, who have been trying to destabilize Europe and North America. That is something that I find very concerning and where I would think that Americans should really look at these dynamics very closely and also look at how parts of the population have been manipulated. Julia Ebner is a senior research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue and the author of Going Dark, The Secret Lives of Extremists. Thanks for joining us on Shifting Ground. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to On Shifting Ground, produced in partnership with KQED, with funding from TPG, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and from listeners like you. If you want to support the program by becoming a member or by making a donation of any size, please go to worldaffairs.org donate. Today's episode was produced by Matteo Schimpf and Andrew Stelzer. Research and fact-checking provided by Elise Manukian. The program was mixed and mastered by Matteo Schimpf. KQED's Jim Bennett is our technical supervisor. Philip Yun is CEO of World Affairs. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Ray Suarez. Thanks for listening.